Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will continue teaching us from Genesis 23 and 24 on how the death of Sarah made Abraham realize that his seed and the promises of the future Messiah from God must continue. So Abraham sought for a wife for his son, Isaac. And we hope you're enjoying these tremendous Bible studies, this great expository teaching that we're getting from Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. And we do appreciate your listenership, and we hope that you'll go to our website, friendshipwithgod.org, to take advantage of some of our free resources or to go to our bookstore that's there. But we also want to make an invitation to you for 2015 to become one of our monthly supporters of Friendship with God so we can continue broadcasting on this station in your city, as well as providing the messages for free for you, the listener, on iTunes.com, SermonAudio.com, and also on our main website, FriendshipWithGod.org. All there for free listening and free download, but it's there with your support, and we need you to become a monthly supporter if you can. You can call us at 800 247 3051, and we can set you up for that. That's 800-247-3051, and that'll help continue Friendship with God airing on this station in your city and also available by podcast and MP3 download. Again, it's 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051 to support Friendship with God this year in 2015 with a monthly donation of any amount. Or you can donate one time online at friendshipwithgod.org. Now here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, on Friendship with God. So Abraham looks at Mamre in this cave, and he sees this is just going to be an expansion, this cave of Machpelah. It's not an end. It's an expansion. It's a doubling. See, he sees his history. Here's the death. Death, for example, of himself. He sees because he knows he's going to be buried there. So he sees on one side of Abraham's history, his side on life, he sees fellowship with God at the altar in the plains of Mamre. And then he sees the other side of history, which is Abraham's history in heaven after he dies, and he sees fellowship with God, continued, expanded fellowship with God. And as he looks at these two parts of his life here, of his history before his death and his history after his death, he sees a doubling or an expansion of his fellowship with God. That's what the word makpela means. Makpela means doubling or expansion. And so as Abraham thought on the name of the cave, Machpelah, Abraham loves that name. I love that name. I love to say the name Machpelah. I love to say doubling. I love to say expansion because he thinks expansion. That's what I see here. In this valley, I had fellowship with God. And after I die, I'll have an expanded or a doubled fellowship with God. And you can tell if a person's going to heaven or not by one simple question. The person, does that person have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ now? Because heaven is a makpela. It's a doubling of the fellowship with the Lord Jesus. It's an expansion of the fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And that's how he described heaven in John 14, 3, when he said, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you will, you may be also. See, an expansion. I've been with you on earth. I'm going to be more with you. It's a doubling. It's an expansion. So heaven for a person is really to be received to the person of the Lord Jesus. A person says, well, I don't know about Jesus, but I like the streets of gold. And he says, no, that's not what heaven is. Going to heaven is to be able to go where the Lord Jesus is to be with him forever. And if a person has no fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ on earth, and then they try to get to heaven... You know, like uh, Bob Dylan's song, Knock, Knock, Knock on Heaven's Door. 
Then they hear Matthew 7, 23, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. It means we never had fellowship together on earth. I don't know you. So leave. Depart from me. So the grave of Machpelah, with its name of doubling or expansion, was a statement for the believing patriarchs that they believed that when they died, that their fellowship that they had with Jehovah Jesus was going to be doubled, was going to be expanded. And this Machpelah grave for the patriarchs was their statement that they believed the truth expressed in 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. They believed John 14.3 that we just talked about. I go and prepare a place for you, come again, receive you to myself, where I am there you may be also. They believed Psalm 23, the last verse in the 23rd Psalm. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And what happens afterward? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. They believed 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So shall we ever be with the Lord. They believed what the Lord Jesus Christ said in John 11.25 when Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Why? Because he's connected in fellowship with the one who is the life. So Sarah's grave, which is the grave of the patriarchs, many were buried there. Sarah, this grave in Machpelah was a sign of life after death for the patriarchs. They believed. Psalm 22, verse 26. The meek shall eat and be satisfied, and they shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. And John 3, 16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but go on and have everlasting life. So it's a monument there, that craven Machpelah. It's a monument of faith in God to raise from the dead. Like it says in Matthew 9, 28, where he's come into the house, the blind men came to him and saith unto him, and he said to them, Believe ye that I'm able to do this? Heal his blindness. They said, Yea, Lord. And then John eleven twenty six, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. So it's a token. This cave of Machpelah is a token of hope in God. He's going to deliver from death, as he said in Hosea 13, 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I'll redeem them from death. O death, I'll be thy plagues. O grave, I'll be thy destruction. It's an image, when that cave at Machpelah is an image of the rest for the people of God. As it says in Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into rest, he also has ceased from his own work as God did from his. This cave at Machpelah is a sign. It's a sign of the longing in the people of God who looked beyond the grave for the eternal city, as it says in Hebrews 11.10, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In Philippians 3.20 it says, our conversation, our lifestyle, our life really is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 13.13-14 says, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach, for here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. So the grave of Machpelah became a great testimony to the patriarchs. It's at that grave that Abraham testified of his hope as he laid Sarah there. It was at that grave of Machpelah that Isaac testified of his hope when he laid Abraham there. It was at that grave of Machpelah that Rebekah was placed. It was at that grave of Machpelah that Jacob put Leah there, and then Joseph put uh, Jacob there. 
And just imagine how as each one died, and they'd go to that cave, they'd go to that grave in Machpelah there, and they laid another believer. And when they did that, they would go in that cave and they'd see the bones of the other believers, and the statement really came home as they put down the new dead believer, but the, other, the bones of the other believers, and they would say, this cave is a gathering place. This is a gathering place here. We're gathering them together. We're gathering the bones together, and it's symbolic, and it's a testimony of how they're gathered together in heaven. You know, here at the chapel, we're a family of believers. This is our family. We're family. But we're an eternal family. So that's why it's important. If we're ever angry with one believer, we need to clear that up fast. As a matter of fact, Paul says, don't let the sun go down. He says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry, sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. In other words, deal with it. Deal with it the same day. Don't go to sleep without resolving an issue. That's why the Lord said at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.23-24, therefore, if I bring thy gift unto the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, not that you have something against him, but you think that he has something against you. you know? Believe there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Because we're going to spend eternity, like the cave of Machpelah gathered together, we're going to spend eternity with believers. So you resolve the differences and be reconciled immediately. So Abraham wanted to buy this cave. It was a large cave. It was a burying place. But it's really a gathering place. And the bodies would gather together and the symbolic of them being gathered together in heaven. As we leave now in Genesis chapter 23, we're leaving this chapter where we saw Abraham really emerge as a man who was broken with the death of Sarah. We saw Abraham in humility, a man of humility before the sons of heaven. We saw him as a man with openness and a transparent honesty with the sons of heaven. We saw him as a man really cared about the sons of heaven. I mean, he communed with them. He hung out with them. He ate with them. He laughed with them. He let them look straight through him. He's a man, the more resolved to live the remainder of his life as a stranger and a pilgrim. And we saw a man who saw death as Machpelah. It's just an expansion of the wonderful fellowship I've had with God. And as hard as it was for Abraham and the death of his wife Sarah, this was the conclusion of his marriage to Sarah. And so chapter 23, with the ends, the death of a wife and the conclusion of the marriage between Sarah and Abraham. And now as we open chapter 24... We're now going to shift from Abraham to Isaac, and God wants us really to see clearly who this person Isaac really is. Well, the real Isaac stand up. He wants us to really get to know Isaac. Now, what kind of a person is Isaac? So as we open chapter 24, we'll have this beginning of this new marriage with the finding of a wife for Isaac. So the death of Sarah, Abraham realizes the seed God's seed, the seed of the Messiah, it's got to continue. And so he becomes concerned. There's one little problem, a minor problem. I only have one son, he doesn't have a wife. Apart from that, everything's going to go fine. But he said, he sees this great problem. You know, Abraham, he's thinking of the promises of God that have been made to him. Promises like what God said, you know, and how all these promises were wrapped up now in one person, Isaac. And Abraham's thinking, God said, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. He's thinking, I will make thy name great, God said. God said, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And Isaac's his only son between him and Sarah. And all the promises about the expansion of the seed of Abraham, stars of heaven, and so forth, the land of Canaan, the redemption of the world, it's all now focused on this boy, on Isaac. And when you stack up 
all of these promises and expectations on one side, we just stack them up here now. And we say, boy, here they are. Look at them now. Look how great these things are. Stack them up. Great and mighty nation, making his name great. All the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it unto thy seed. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You stack up all those promises there. You stack all those great promises, great expectations on one side. And now on the other side, you put one person. And who is that? <laughs> what image comes to your mind? You think, whoa, wow, those are really great. Who is this person who's going to become the great and mighty nation? And his name's going to become great. He's going to receive all the land of Canaan. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. I mean, what kind of a person comes to your mind? When you see in your mind, you see, well, he must be a very strong person. A very courageous person, a man who's ready to shoulder it all. And who is that man? And now enters in Isaac, the man that God has chosen. And what do we see in Isaac? Do we see a strong, courageous man here? No. (laughs) Not really. We see Isaac, as the Bible portrays him here, he's a weak mama's boy. Over 30 years old, he's so attached to his mama that he's not thinking about getting married. It takes the death of Sarah for Isaac to even be willing to consider it. And she didn't die yesterday. She died three years ago. And he's still attached to her. As it says in Genesis 24, 67, the last verse says, And Isaac brought her, Rebekah, into his mother's tent. How romantic. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. And then as the chapter ends with, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. It's been three years. We see Isaac. He's a weak mama's boy who was protected by his mother. She was very protective. Remember in Genesis 21.10 where she said, Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Isaac's like behind his mother's skirt there. He's a weak mama's boy who avoided confrontation. He would not go to war with the Philistines, but he let the Philistines just push him around and take away all his wells. And we're going to read about that in Genesis 26, where we're going to see that Isaac, it says, a man waxed great. He went forward and grew until he became very great. He had possessions of flocks, possessions of herds, great stores of servants, and the Philistines envied him. And for all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. That's something to go to war with. Egypt told Ethiopia, where the Blue Nile starts up in the north of Ethiopia, they said, you touch that Blue Nile, even though it travels through another country, Sudan, we'll go to war with you. Well, they didn't just touch it here. They filled them up with earth, you know. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. Isaac didn't quite see himself that way. And Isaac departed thence, and so he left. Pitched his tent over in Gerar and dwelt there. He digged again the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of Abraham's father. And the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called the names after the old names. And Isaac's, they dug more water, and they found them. And the herdmen of Gerar strove with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. We'll return with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, on Friendship with God in just a moment. We'd like to encourage you to sign up for Tom Cantor's daily devotional verse. It's available for free, signing up with your email by going to friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also donate online at friendshipwithgod.org to support this Bible teaching radio program. You can also call us now or after the program with your support and donation at 800-247-3051, It'll help us to continue airing on this station in your city. You can also call us for a free gift 
for a lost Jewish friend that you know that needs to be reached with the gospel. Tom Cantor and Israel Restoration Ministries will give you a free gift to reach your lost Jewish friend, and that's made available by your donations and your support, but we'll provide that free if you have a lost Jewish friend that needs to be reached with the gospel. Call us at 800-247-3051. So Isaac was confronted by the Philistines who were stealing and destroying his father's well. This is the lifeblood of an animal enterprise, which he had. And so what does Isaac do? Stand and fight to hold his ground? No, not Isaac. He cowers and runs. Yeah. And so we see Isaac as a weak mama's boy, and he admires Esau. He says, oh, Esau, he's my favorite son. Why? Because Esau's all that I'm not, Isaac says. He says, boy, there's a hunter, a real outdoorsman, which Isaac was not. Isaac was a mama's boy. And he was easily manipulated by his wife, Rebecca, who orchestrated this great deception of tricking him to bless Jacob is disguised as Esau. So Isaac, this weak mama's boy, is the one that God has chosen to carry all those great promises that we stacked up here and all those expectations. Why? Why would God choose a man like Isaac, a mama's boy, a weak person, not a mighty person, not a person you would consider particularly wise, a despised person? Why would he be the one to carry on God's future on the earth? I mean, we look at ourselves And we see ourselves as weak also. We see ourselves, we're not mighty. We see ourselves as not particularly wise. We see ourselves as despised. Why does God choose us? Why did God choose Isaac? Why does God choose us? Why did God choose Isaac? Why did God choose to use us? It seems so foolish. I mean, why would God choose Isaac and choose us to accomplish his purpose on earth? And the answer, of course, is found in 1 Corinthians 1 26 to 29, where it says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound, to confuse the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound or confuse the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised that God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So when God says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, God's saying, look at Isaac, see Isaac, He's a weak mama's boy. And understand, God chose Isaac. He's not the sharpest pencil in the drawer. And see him there. See Isaac and understand, God chose Isaac. God chose this weak mama's boy to confuse or confound the mighty men of the earth for one reason. So Isaac could not glory in God's presence. Isaac could not say, should not say, I did it. Look what I did. But Isaac should say, look what God did. And God's saying to us, look at yourself. He says, look at yourselves. A very admirable list here. (laughs) Nothing to write home about. He says, you know, look at yourself. He says, look at yourself. You're weak. You're foolish. You're not wise. You're base. You're despised. And we can make a long list of things that we are not. And understand that God has chosen us to confuse the wise and the mighty for one reason. That like Isaac, we should never say, look what I did. But that we, like Isaac, should say, look what God did. And so we enter chapter 24, and we're going to find that this chapter is going to be Abraham's care in finding a wife for Isaac. This chapter is going to be the urging or the persuading of Rebekah to come 
to be Isaac's wife. This chapter is going to be all about the faithfulness of Eliezer of Damascus, Abraham's servant. And this chapter is going to finish, as we saw, with the marriage of Isaac. Now, as we said here, Abraham knows his son. He knows what kind of son he's got. And he knows it's been three years after the death of Sarah. And we find that Isaac is still mourning, still needing comfort over her death. And so Abraham saw that Isaac was ready to waste away over sorrow over the death of his mother. And Abraham knew that Isaac's not an outgoing, aggressive type person. He's not. To the contrary, Abraham knew that his son Isaac was retiring. He was a melancholy type of person who was just ready to accept whatever came his way. And three years after his mother's death, it was clear to Abraham that we got a problem here. (laughs) Isaac is either going to sink into a lonely life of a recluse, or he's going to allow himself to enter into a wrong marriage and be led away by an ungodly woman of Canaan. So this is the backdrop that we come to in chapter 24, when it says in verse 1, Abraham is old and well-stricken in age, and the Lord has blessed Abraham of all things. So when we read in verse 1 that Abraham's condition is described as old and well-stricken, boy, that's a perfect description of what old age does for us, isn't it? It's well-stricken, beats us up everywhere. Hey, Irene? <laughs> <laughs> the older we get, the longer our list, because old age does that, it beats us up. And that's the way Abraham's described. A pretty sad picture. You know what? That's only half the verse. Because the other half says the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. How could a person who is described as old and well-stricken in age be described as a person who has been blessed by God in all things? Because Abraham had God. And as it says in 1 John 5, 11 through 12, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son has life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So in himself, Abraham is an old man. He's well stricken in years. In himself, Abraham has death. But in God, Abraham has life. And that made Abraham blessed in all things. And you can really tell the difference between a believer who gets old and a lost person who gets old. Because when a lost person gets old, he's well-stricken in age, and he sees death just creeping over his body. And he doesn't have life in God. And the lost person sinks into a deeper and deeper depression, who, like Robin Williams, when he gets diagnosed in the early stages of Parkinson's disease, he says, I've got to go hang myself. But when a saved person like Abraham gets old and well-stricken, and he sees death creeping over his body, he has life in God. And so his words are like the song, you know, Oh God, my God, I seek your face. You'll always be my resting place. My body's weak. My soul is dry. Your love alone can satisfy my heart and fill me with delight. Oh God, my God, you are my life. My body's weak. You are my life. That's why Abraham was blessed in all things. And now we see in verse 2, Abraham said unto his elder servant of his house, his Eliezer, ruled over all that he had, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. So he sets out to make sure that Isaac's going to get a godly wife. And he knew that Isaac needed a godly wife, a nice godly wife, a beautiful wife. That wouldn't hurt also. So was Sarah. In his life to pull him out of the sadness of his mother's death. And he knew that Isaac needed this beautiful godly wife to make him blossom out of the sadness because Abraham knew this is what Isaac needs. It reminds me 14 years ago when I got the stent in my heart when they pulled the catheter out of the groin there. There was a new nurse who was being trained, but anyways, he didn't know to put enough pressure on Big bruise. You know, so I was walking around with a cane very slowly, you know. Don't get in my way, I'm something to... I was walking around like a 100-year-old invalid. And this went on for some time, and Cheryl was getting upset about it. And she wanted me to stop doing that. Now, Cheryl hated sailing, because in our little Lido 14, there's no toilet. And I was known for taking her out for four-hour sailing trips without a bathroom break. 
And so she said, I'm never going sailing with you again in Lido 14. And so it sat in the garage, where it is right now, as a matter of fact. Until one day, 14 years ago, when I was hobbling around with my bruised groin and my cane, and Cheryl said to me, you want to go sailing in the Lido? (laughs) I said, you mean you'll go sailing with me? She said, sure. And I knew how much she hated it. So I put the cane down, and I got the boat hooked up to the trailer. Rigged it, went down to Shelter Island, set up the sail. We launched it, sailed all around. I stopped hobbling on my cane. That was the end of my hobbling. That was a big sacrifice for Cheryl, but she knew what I needed to stop you know, acting like a man ready to die. And she did that because she knew what I needed to snap out of it, see? So Abraham knows that what Isaac needs to snap him out of the sadness over his mother's death is just a beautiful, godly wife. And that would make Isaac blossom out of the sadness because Abraham knew in his own life how important godly as she was Sarah, beautiful as she was Sarah, have been to him and how God had used her. Now Abraham, he gives himself, he got to find a wife. So what does he do? Verse one, he can't do it himself. He's old. He can't. He's forced to commit the mission to another person. And so now enter in on the stage, Eliezer of Damascus, verse two, eldest servant. And Abraham has watched him. Abraham trusts Eliezer, who's in the position of supreme command in all of Abraham's wife. And notice in verse two, what it says about Eliezer, he ruled over all that he had. There are people you meet, you get confidence in them, you can trust them, you feel comfortable, you know they're going to be loyal to you in the light, they're going to be loyal to you in the dark. Another wonderful Bible study from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. If you're enjoying the Friendship with God radio program, we'd like you to support this Bible teaching program, and for any donation of $100 or more, we will send you Tom Cantor's new Friendship with God Study and Reference Bible. It's over 2,200 pages with over 600 pages of Bible helps. has a genuine lambskin leather cover. It's got a prophecy and fulfillment section, names of the Messiah section, and so many other amazing Bible helps. Call us, 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051.